please tell Phil um, uh, he will be sorely missed. And uh, and I'm sorry, guys. He's my favorite bunga. <laughs> this is definitely we know that's a lie. It's <laughs> <laughs> no one's favorite. <laughs> I like I like a grump. What can I say? Welcome to BungaCast. You may also know us as Alpha Bunga Bunga, uh, and maybe even the end of the end of history. Oh, Jesus Christ! We've been doing this for fucking too long. To fuck that <laughs> uh, uh, keep okay. it, keep it. Yeah. It's organic. Yeah, it's organic. We don't like organic on this podcast. We're all in favor it's of true. the artificial. Uh, true. Anyway, welcome, welcome everyone to BungaCast. You may also know us as Alpha Bunga Bunga. Or maybe even the Global Politics Podcast at the end of the end of history. But that's quite a mouthful, so I suspect you know us by one of the first two names. Uh, this is the first episode that we're actually recording in 2023. So, uh, or it's 2024, shit. First episode that we're recording in 2024. Uh, for us, it's Friday the 19th of January. Uh, so welcome back to us, though. You've been listening to us already at the beginning of this year. I remain Alex Hochuli in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and this podcast is also... George in London. Howdy, George, as I believe they say in in, uh, in the UK. They surely do. Howdy. <laughs> Back to you, Alex. <laughs> uh, Philip Cunliffe, regular listeners may notice, is away. Um, he'll be back next week. But uh, look who we have here, Amber Lee Frost. Welcome back. Now a, a Bunga cast regular. Um, who ha- And she has a book out. And look Ooh. at her. Got, I mean, if you're seeing this on video, you can see that she's not just pouty lips and a cigarette as the cover of her book. She's <laughs> a real human woman. If I knew we were on video, I would have gussied up a little bit. I only woke up a bit ago because I got I got a bit of a cold. Right. No, and, and Amber's in, in Los Angeles, so it's much earlier. You may also know it as L.A. Um, anyway, that's a city where, where she is, I think. Um, and we're going to be talking about her book, Dirtbag, um, which is kind of a memoir, partly a kind of discussion and critique of the millennial left. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, and then in the bonus stuff, stick around uh, if you're a subscriber. And if you're not, it's patreon.com slash bungacast. We're going to be talking a little bit about the World Economic Forum at Davos, which is going on now, whether there's a, whether there's a vibe shift going on uh, amongst the elite. And then we're going to talk about the U.S. election, a uh, little bit of a preview there. But also, um, we're going to be talking about uh, the DSA. That's going to kind of be the, the meat of the sandwich, I guess, or the kind of the bit that <laughs> joins up the two. It's basically like a really bready sandwich with a bit of meat, but the little bit of meat I'm, is what I'm talking about now. That little bit of meat is the Democratic Socialists of America and what's going on there, uh, an organization that Amber was a member of for a very long time. Um, and I technically still am it. because I worked for them. I, right. I have a lifetime membership. So they can't get rid of you? Or you no, you they can't. can't. Uh, no. God knows they've tried. <laughs> so uh yeah we're gonna have we're gonna have some more juicy stuff on that um in just a bit um just to give you a little preview of, of, of the year in general because we're stepping into our seventh year at bunga cast here in 2024 uh if you've been with us 
for those seven years. I hope you're not getting any kind of seven-year itch. Um, we'll try to spice things up in the bedroom to make sure you you stick around <laughs> and keep interested. Um, if you're new, maybe this is the first time you ever listened to us. Uh, if so, welcome. Um, we talk about why the world is falling apart, why politics is back, and it's weirder than ever. Um, this year, there are a huge amount of elections. There's probably the greatest number of elections or the greatest number of people going to the polls in elections at any point in human history, which is a weird kind of synchronicity that's happened. Something like 4 billion people are going to the polls or at least eligible to go to the polls. Of course, in November, there's the election in the global hegemon, or that is an opaque phrase to you, the kind of global gorilla, if you prefer, um, <laughs> the United States. Um, there's also a, an election in, a, in the second largest or now the first largest country in the world, uh, the rising tiger of India. Uh, Indonesia, the fourth largest country in the world, also have an election. I don't know what animal they're meant to be. Um, and it, that's partly because it's probably the largest country which people don't really talk very much about. So we're going to be doing deep dives on the politics and history and society of all these countries uh, hooked on their elections this year. There's also I, elections I in Mexico. I have an Indonesia side, yeah. sorry. Okay. My Indonesia go, side no, go, is that a good point for me. in seventh grade, uh, we had to do a report on different countries and we, we got them uh, drawn out of a hat. And... Uh, I got Indonesia and I could not find shit on Indonesia. And a week after my report, they uh, erupted into civil war. And I was like, damn it. <laughs> it's, yeah, that's terrible timing. Um, that's I know. Kind of like this the, as well. like, really yeah. inconsiderate the CIA? <laughs> the CIA giving you these assignments to do Ugh. some uh, kind of investigation into it? I don't know. Everything's fine. Is, like, is, is yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, I did Peru, which probably wasn't complete chaos at that time, but I didn't know. I just talked about llamas and the Incas and stuff. Uh, <laughs> anyway, also uh, also elections and stuff, countries we're, we're going to be talking about as well. Some we've talked about before in the past, some we're going to um, be coming to kind of afresh. Uh, Mexico, South Africa, Pakistan, and maybe the UK, which there I have an animal thing for. I guess it's the skunk that thinks it's a lion. No, um, no. <laughs> It's the it's the lion, yeah. Mm -hmm. The three lions, the the sixty million lions. How many lions? Anyway, oh yeah. yeah, just have to defend um, my country. Yeah, which is kind it's of a, it's a it's like not falling a, um, apart at the seams. Pretty miserable place by all accounts, culturally, socially, terrible. economically, politically, especially. So um, anyway, we're going to be talking about the UK if if they indeed have an election, which um my British based friends, George included, assure me that there is likely to be one. I don't know. We don't know. But anyway, we'll be there when, when, when it happens. Don't, don't, yeah, don't give it away to the listeners. They have to keep listening if they want to know whether there's going to be an election or not in the UK and what we think <laughs> yeah, about it. This is their only source of news to figure out whether there's an election. <laughs> anyway, we're not an election podcast, but elections are a good moment to do deep dives into countries to explore some of their contradictions and um, how they are facing up to the crisis of the neoliberal order um, and the kind of falling apart of the end of history. So um, that's what we plan to do over the course of the year. We hope you'll be with us for it. You'll join us or stick with us if you've been with us for a while, if you have. Thank you and thanks for being with us. Um, there's also, oh, I forgot, some some kind of phony elections, which we might also talk about um, kind of in Potemkin democracies. So there's elections in Russia, which, okay, we kind of know what's going to happen, but Mm, let's see what happens. Um, and the European Parliament, of course, um, which is kind of another phony election. Um, but, you know, also always a, a kind of um, tells you where things are going, I guess, um, European parliamentary elections, even though it's kind of a rubber stamp parliament. Anyway, right. Um, that's enough kind of previewing. Um, let's get down to, to Dirtbag. 
Amber's book. I obviously really enjoyed it. I, I would say that anyway, so there's no way I can convey my genuine, <laughs> like authentic feelings for it um, without without being accused maybe of just buttering up our, our guest and friend here, Amber. But um, I think it's great. Hey, I'll take it. it. Yeah. No, okay, great. So I don't need to do any more of that. Perfect. Um, let's, <laughs> let's get into it. I mean, actually, you're, you know, you're a critic of, of confessional literature. I think we've talked about that in the podcast. Mm-hmm. And yet here you are hawking a book of your own confessions. I mean, your confessions are mostly I was right all along. So I think that's, that's all right. <laughs> I, I did a whole thing on Occupy that was a mea culpa about how wrong I was. I think I think I tr- it became very difficult to not write an I told you so book because that tends to be what you think of when you're in the, the heat of the moment and you're reviewing um, failures. But I like to think I reviewed some of my own failures, um, uh, particularly like early on. But the and, and I acknowledge the only reason that I avoided certain failures that a lot of people sort of, you know, succumbed to is because I came in around the time when uh, we used to joke that DSA was just a, a, a Jewish retirement home. It was like all very old left, like guys who's, and women whose like mothers were CP members from the Bronx. So, and I read a lot of memoirs too. So I, I kind of avoided some landmines that I think are very easy to fall into. And that's only because I got on the ground floor before there was all this momentum behind it. But no, I stepped in it a few times. I, I, <laughs> I acknowledge that, I think. Yeah. I mean, so you, I mean, you joined the DSA in the, in the, still in the 2000s, you know, which is before mm-hmm. all this stuff happened, before the end of the end of history, before um, the global financial crisis and all the political consequences of it. So, you know, kind of early on. And, and I guess you can, the way you characterize it in the book is pretty interesting, you know, um, you know, at both as kind of Jewish retirement home, but also talking about your involvement in it. It was kind of a quixotic sort of thing. Um, mm-hmm. You know, people would see it and be like, what the hell, especially in, in Indiana. Um, yeah. but, so I think a, 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 as a consequence, you kind of are, you, your experience um, on the U.S. left has um, bookended, I guess, the experience of, of millennials, right? Of kind of certainly for like older millennials, the period of anti-war activism uh, through yeah. to kind of the Occupy phase after the global financial crisis and, and the Bernie campaign. So I'm going to ask a question, which I already asked um, a couple of weeks back on this podcast, which I asked Chris Coutron, who has this book about the death of the millennial left. There's lots of books coming out about this experience, I think, now, at the moment. So that's maybe telling, I guess, about, about um, lots of people reflecting back on, on the past decade. Mm-hmm. We talk about the millennial left. I'm not sure you do, but there is certainly a, a kind of common generational experience of left activism or a kind of generational sequence that has happened on on, on the left. Um, but I wonder, you know, do you think it makes sense to talk about this in generational terms? I, I mean, I mean, I think uh, generational politics as an agenda are stupid, and that's part of the reason why we had a problem. You know, we didn't have the horses. Um, because it was sort of the the Bernie campaigns were not they weren't totally millennial driven. We had some some labor and stuff, but a lot of it was. I think we thought uh, youth was a demographic. Um, something I wrote um, with uh, Anton Yeager after after the um, the UK elections. Um, but I do think that's part of the problem is that it was generational. Um, or at least a little too generational. Um, I think youth movements are, I think, you know, I think they're stupid (laughs) and and relatively hopeless, mainly because there just aren't enough of us, of us. 
but also because at the time when I think they were most uh, effective, or at least when youth movements had the most um, had the most behind them, was specifically because there was the baby boom. There were just a lot yeah. more young people. It's just they had more horses than we do. Yeah, for sure. Um, and, and, that, and that comes through, I think, like in my own experience and experience of other people that I've read about or talked about with them that, you know, you go to like a kind of left wing meeting and it's like a couple of old boomers, no Gen Xers and, and then loads of millennials. Um, yeah, you know, they so dropped out. Kind of- the Xers really dropped yeah. out. I mean, I guess that's the hangover of end of history. I'd, I'd be I'd probably be feel more dejected if I were a Gen Xer than I was a millennial, because at least I saw something. I saw the possibilities of something. If you came around the end of history, you're like, well, shit, I guess that's it. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I think like that sort of generational gap, it maybe is problematic in terms of transmission of, of ideas, though maybe we actually need to get rid of all those old ideas too. So I don't know. That, that's a whole discussion into itself, which we can come on to. Um, but also, yeah, the, the, the fact of it being a youth movement, um, it will necessarily kind of reflect the experiences of youth, which nowadays... You know, does involve generally having a family. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that's kind or of taking care of the older people in your family. It's just it's fundamentally yeah. not multi generational, which I think is just you're tripping over your own dick. And again, there aren't enough of us. It, it I don't know. That's it's it's I, I echo it a lot with uh, Thompson in like fear and loathing. He's like, yeah, we were so sure we were going to win, you know, and, and it's very tragic. And you feel like, how could they have been so sure? And you saw it all, you saw it happen all over again. Yeah. There's definitely a kind of farcical reenactment of the boomers, which we millennials did. I think Yeah, as much as we um, shit on them. Degree, which... Yeah. Um, so, to, to move on to like what I think is the, the, the best part of the book, it's definitely the highlight. Um, it, it drew um, wry grimaces and, and also laughing out loud for me <laughs> while reading it. Um, and we're going to talk about perverts. Um, <laughs> get close to the mic when you say that. Sorry, what, what was that? Perverts. Yeah, you have, to, you have to hear the breathing and do it. <laughs> <laughs> You're getting the ASMR um, listeners in there with, with that, Alex. So they'll just repeat right. that over so, and over. So, yeah, no, I, I, I will take every opportunity I have uh, to do that. So, <laughs> Amber, you, you, um, you identify three perversions, um, I guess, on, on the left, left commentary, left analysis, left activism. Um, and I think it's, I think they're, it's like bang on, you know, um, and they are uh, masochism, pedophilia and necrophilia. Um, and, and, you know, yeah. there are, uh, there's, there's, um, avatars for these perversions there, which you don't mention by name, but you know, they're obviously there if you look at the footnotes. Um, so let's, <laughs> let's go, th- let's go through these, um, masochism. Why, who are the left masochists? I think when you have guilt driven politics, uh, which I think is kind of a contradiction in terms, I think we agree it's, it's, it's not really a politics, it's a perversion but it does form a kind of, of a political agenda where, you know, you're like, it, it started out with as a privileged person and which of course divides you. It, I mean, literally divides you and it's kind of not only anti-populist, but just broadly anti-universalist. Um, I think some of it, some of that, the germ of that, I would say, I mean, I, I'm I'm a bomb the Bay Area type of person, uh, but it, it's sort of like a Maoist 
um, origin, even if people don't trace it back to that, where it's like, there is no working class in the first world kind of thing. And it, it also sort of fetishizes, um, you know, the third world or the people who almost live as third worlders in America. Um, and, uh, and it, it, you're just stuck. You're just stuck because you're constantly, um, trying to sort of, um, I don't, I, I don't know, sort of work, um, a, a kind of, uh, acknowledgement of, um, of, of levels of suffering. Um, like there's a metric system of suffering or something, uh, and prioritize, uh, the people who you think are suffering the most when in fact those people are in many ways, not the best, uh, uh, candidates to be the front lines of anything specifically because marginal people are by definition marginalized. And I think we focused a lot on, um, resistance, which is a very funny word. Cause like, if you step on a cockroach, that crunch you hear is a resistance. It still dies. <laughs> you know, uh, resistance is, I, I, I've had a lot of trouble, for example, with the Palestinian stuff and they're like, but isn't it heartening the way like people are rallying around? I'm like, no, <laughs> they've, they've essentially, I mean, lost and there's nothing we could do about it. Mm. Like if, if everything stopped right now, it would still be considered a massive loss just based on the death toll alone. Even if, even if there was a, um, I don't, I don't want to say like relocation because that's horrifying too. But even if, even if Israel suddenly became, um, a, a secular non-ethno state and there was, you know, new play, you know, which is not going to happen, but if there was a, you know, huge public housing program and reparations and a job program, it was still a horrible loss. And I think the, um, the sort of obsessions with, uh, I don't, it's a fetish. It's a fetish for the suffering. And it, 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 and it, again, divisive, obviously, but is kind of passing the buck. You know, it's kind of saying, well, it's not our responsibility to work on alongside of these people. That would be intrusive and presumptuous. And we would be telling, you know, the magical third world brown people with their uh, with their intrinsic moral, uh, ethnic and political instincts, which I'm sorry, is like racist. Um, you know, they're going to lead us. It's like they're fucking living in rubble. Like, what are you talking about? Um, so yeah, yeah, masochism based entirely off of, it passes the buck. It, it's based Mm. entirely off of, uh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, which doesn't do shit. And it's annoying, makes you fucking annoying. And then the, the, the perversion is that people kind of enjoy this, enjoy witnessing this, this suffering. And so kind of perpetuate it and witnessing the suffering. And I think it's almost a sense of like trying to, I don't know, stealing valor is the the correct word, but being like, well, if I'm self-flagellating about this and I not just Mm. self-flagellating, but if I take, uh, if I take flagellation from like whatever uh, sadistic opportunist, then like it kind of absolves me of like this sins of the father thing, whether you personally did anything or not. It's also very kind of, um, I think Matt Carp talks about this. It's also like almost the idea of genetic inheritance of like uh, violence and oppression, which is like, you can't pick who your daddy is. Like, that's not, 
that's that's ridiculous. I think I am sympathetic to the people who are like, well, I didn't do anything. And it's like it kind of misdirects the idea of inequalities based on, you know, whatever nationality, racial, ethnic, religious group um, into this strange kind of this strange kind of uh, uh, whatever it's, it's, it's a search. It's a search for absolution um, to, uh, to to say like, Oh, I'm, I'm forgiven. I've been a very bad boy. And if you get spanked enough, you're one of the good ones or something. It's just, yeah. Well, I mean, the the thing with masochism, the thing with masochism and, and, you know, being a submissive uh, as well um, to talk about perversions again, is that (laughs) they are the ones who are in control. Right. Absolutely. You know, the, the submissive is the one who's actually in control. So uh, not the not the dom. So I guess this is They're what the most you're saying. demanding so the guy people. Like, right. And so it's like the guy it, basically the, the, the masochist on the left here is someone who's like stands up and is like as a cis head white male, I, you know, I'm, I'm complicit in all in perpetrating all these atrocities and, and centuries of domination and oppression and blah, blah, blah. So I have no right to speak here, um, but I'm going to keep talking anyway. Um, yeah, which is yeah. kind of what I do on this podcast, but yeah. No, um, <laughs> right. So like to move on from, from the masochist. So I think everyone's familiar with, everyone's encountered this kind of masochist figure, um, even though maybe they don't, you don't identify them as, as a masochist, but I think that's a really useful label. Um, the, the, the second one, and here we're getting into to darker areas, uh, the, the pedophile. Um, what is the, the leftist pedophile? Well, I do think it's another way of passing the buck. Um, it's you know the children will save us. I think it. I think it did start with again the new left um, because they conceived of themselves as kind of the front lines of of progress. However, they may have def- however they may have defined that, and then and then I think to some degree they have this sense of there is there's a there's a tinge of masochism to it. Um, they have this sense of, um, oh no, we fucked up the world. We have to, and then there's also this blame, um, from youth, which is very short sighted. Cause it's like, Hey man, if you're lucky, you're going to get old too. <laughs> but there's this idea that like, yeah, the, the boomers fucked everything up and now we have to, it's like, shut the fuck up. What's this, this, this fuck you dad substitute for politics that is very much the kind of generational politics or maybe an extension of the generational sort of like youth politics that automatically again prevents any kind of intergenerational you know uh cooperation or 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 movement um i think as well there's just this really weird cult of the child kind of thing that happen um you know the the Thunberg stuff with her fucking ugh, shrieking at me. I just remember being like, who is this little Scandinavian shit yelling at me? Um, and, and moreover, I, I felt very defensive of older people. I felt very, you know, mm. fuck you. I love my mama. She grew up without electricity or indoor plumbing. My mother did not ruin the world. And my mother was a fucking jet xer she was a teen mom that had a subprime mortgage like that's shut up you're talking about your parents and it's almost sort of a presumption of 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 the cul-de-sac as standard 
you know, the, uh, the, the nice public school or whatever. But even then, even if your dad was a dentist, your dad didn't have the power to like, you know, your dad wasn't responsible for the 2008 financial crash. We've lived in a but he less was a and less. I mean, he's a <laughs> dentist. He's- <laughs> yeah, true. They're, they're a different kind of pervert. Um, but yeah, and it, it turns into this, this kind of generational warfare and then older people, I think in response, like, you know, no, 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 it's going to be fine. Look how, Look how wonderful these kids are. Look at all their ideals. And it's like, well, they're all so stupid. Like youth, by definition, is the state of being stupid. And some yeah. people- Energetic, but stupid. Obviously. And like old people are kind of lacking in energy, but but wise. I mean, some people yeah. aren't, but you know. Yeah, but, of course. But, it, but so like, it, yeah. it's, a, it's kind of a, consp- this, the, the pedophilia actually is kind of a conspiracy, right? <laughs> this is going to sound terrible. I just realized what I'm saying. The <laughs> pedophilia is a conspiracy, conspiracy between the young and the old. <laughs> Like <laughs> it is, you couldn't have one without arena, the other, obviously. Yeah, yeah. In, yeah. In, in this metaphor, anyway, it's both the kids doing a "fuck you, dad" politics, as well as the the parents or the grandparents saying, "Oh no, let's just the kids are the future; they'll sort out all these political problems for us. We don't need to really care about politics or inform them or educate the youth." Um, they're just, let's just let, let, let the, they're energetic. We don't need to criticize them. They, they're just energetic and full of ideas and creativity. Let them go out there and protest and they'll, they'll yeah. figure it out for themselves. And it's like, that's an abnegation of, of responsibility on, on their, on the older people's part as well. For right. Sure. And kind of fetishizing youth. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. It's like a, a, a ch- it's like a child cult. Um, but I, I think also, uh, Moreover, it exacerbates um, the sense of of uh, generational warfare between uh, coming from the other end. Like it definitely one you know, one side needs the other for sure. Uh, but it, it's like they have this. It's a little bit masochistic too because they're like, we fucked up the world. Like, no, you didn't. Shut up. You didn't. Have, you. It's an overestimation too of uh, the power that generations have. Which we see, we saw it with, uh, you know, we saw it with the new left. They're like, we're winning, we're winning, you know, to, to quote Thompson, you know, we're going to triumph over the old and evil. Look at all this momentum we have. And then you see where the wave broke. And then you see that exact same thing happen with, you know, history. I hate the whole history repeats itself. No, there are new things. Shut up. But you saw the exact same mistake made. During, you know, the, the Bernie campaign, particularly the second one, where they were like, look at all the people we have joining DSA and knocking on doors. It's like, that's great. And it really was impressive. And I think if people came out of it without being extremely disaffected, and I, I didn't, you know, I'm, I'm a lifer, I'm, I'm in the reserves, you know, I will, I will, I will serve when called upon yet again. But uh, I, I think it becomes this... Um, <laughs> It becomes this weird, like, kind of never-ending, like, if you don't resent the progress, the quote-unquote progress that's going on, you immediately think it's going to be fixed the next time around. And you you end up yeah. doing it over and over again. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing about, about children is it's all about potential and, you know, what could be in the future is not a solution for now. I think, you know... 
the way you the way you set out in the book as well like these it's passing the buck in both cases so far you know masochism and, and pedophilia because you know taking responsibility for a political movement is pretty weighty it's not a yeah. kind of easily well, done you, thing and you you run the risk of losing i mean if you're if you're a, a socialist in particular yeah. you uh we lose more than we win and we always will because goliath is bigger and you just part of being an adult also is not is neither getting you know uh so de- dejected you no longer participate or having this blind optimism. Like if you come out of the and God knows there are leftists with with blind optimism as well. There were so many people like, we're winning, we're winning, we're winning, who are like, you know, boomers and Gen Xers, but they don't have an excuse. Like the, the kids have an excuse. One, because they have so much future ahead of them. Two, because you don't know anything yet. That is what the definition of youth is not knowing things. And when you sound, oh, well, they're so mature for their age. That's impossible. Maturation refers to the progress of time. And mature for their age is what pedophiles say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I, th- I also think that the um, this emphasis on, on youth ends up playing out in a way that, um, well, or there's something maybe, put it differently, there's something specific to, to, to our times right, with youth, which seems a lot like what the boomers experienced, right, where there was a huge generational baby boom, um, a a big cultural change, which they carried through, you know, after the Second World War, uh, a new kind of affluent society, etc. But what's actually different is that there was a a degree of continuity there with previous generations of the left, at least, you know, if we're talking within the context of the left, that millennials, our generation, we had, there was a, a pretty important rupture, from past generations because of mm-hmm. the defeat, the global defeat of the workers' movement, because of the end of the Cold War and the radically different mm-hmm. situation that that presented, um, the fact that Gen Xers were kind of the, the, the generation of the end of history and kind of withdrew from politics. So you end up with this kind of gap, as I already mentioned, of, of kind of generational transmission of, of ideas. And so I think that kind of increases the sense of a lot of millennials of like in the 2010s, Hey, let's do politics. Shit. Politics is back. Let's do stuff. But we don't know anything. There's no one to hold our hand. We're like, we're just figuring this out for ourselves. And I I don't want to be making excuses, but at the same time, I think it's just a a reality that like on one level, we did the best we could because we are thrown into a kind of newly politicized situation after the end of history. On the other hand, yeah, we fucked up. I mean, we didn't, we didn't, you know, like the, what has been left of the 2010s is, is very little, right? I, yeah. We, the sense well, of dejection, which you already mentioned. So it's, it's We tricky. are always going to fuck up. And I think if you think that, uh, if your belief is that you can win, if only you don't fuck up, first of all, that's not true. You can do the very best mm. job in the world. And I think I, and still lose. And I think, you know, there's, there's still a conversation to be had about where we fucked up and how big those fucks up fuck ups were, or just how much of it was that, you know, they were bigger and meaner than us. But if you think that if we do everything right, then just stop doing it. Like if you think, Oh, we're going to win if we do everything right, then just get out of politics because you're never going to do that. You're always going to trip over your dick at least once or twice um, more than that, let's be honest. 
But I, I would just to go back to the older people again. I, I do think I benefited from having um, experience of from multiple generations and people who held the torch for a very long time. I mean, there should be like a, a statue of Barbara Ehrenreich in every town square after the revolution or whatever, because it, it's one thing to keep the, to keep the faith as someone who's, you know, mama was in the CP in the Bronx or whatever, because you were very much raised with it. Like you were in it. It was, it was the miasma around you. And you also, those people held the torch because it was much easier for them because they grew up with that. With, with Xers, I mean, it's insane that any of them came to the conclusion that there was more potential. I mean, that those people truly have the faith. But without missing an entire generation, I mean, I can't overestimate this enough or overstate this enough. When you're young and you feel like it's just you and all your cool friends or whatever. It's not actually as cool as you think it is. It's actually, and I don't think we've confronted this. It's very lonely. It's very lonely not to have like elders in their experience. And it's true. They have less energy. They're more time worn, but you are supposed to sort of feed into it. There you have the experience and we have the dumb enthusiasm and it's good for us a little bit good for us to not have to, I mean, learning from mistakes is one thing, but not have to fixate on all of the losses that these people have experienced over and over again. And part of, I think the pedophilia thing too, is just that they're really lonely and, and young people are really lonely. I think we're lonely without each other because it's like, what? We're just like fucking everyone born between the years of 1982 and whatever is, is on their own Island. And, Everyone before that is on their own island. I think the extras more than anyone have an excuse because they didn't have shit. But like, and, and they and they just witnessed what seemed to be the end. Um, but it's yeah. just it's just tragic. I I really benefited from from the experience of these older people. One of a few, I think again, it's one of the many reasons I I miss certain landmines that I can't be mad at other people for trying because. They didn't have that exposure to that experience. I feel like I'm repeating myself a lot here, but no. But I think, know. but that's all. That's all right. I mean, you know, uh, unfortunate references to pedophiles' loneliness and islands, um, you know, kind of in the news at the moment. But that aside, uh, I think no. I think that's all. I think that's all. That's all true. And I'm I'm deeply ambivalent about it myself. And in so far as, on the one hand, part of the problem of left politics today is a kind of repetition of the failures of the past. Like we keep redoing what the new left did um, and thinking that that's what leftism is or thinking that's what revolution is or thinking that's what Marxism is. And it's like repeating the same old kind of attempts at cultural change um, or at kind of individual expression um, in lieu of, um, of actual building organizations, etc. So there's lots of things that we repeat, which would be better to kind of overcome that or at least cut it away um, at the same time as you want to have some sort of intergenerational transmission of, of experience of wisdom, etc. So it's like, I think it's a, it's a, it's a tricky one. I don't have a, I don't have like an easy answer to that. I don't really either, but I think it's the only way I don't think anyone, again, just the numbers, just the horses. I don't think anyone's going to get anything done. I mean, who gets things done a little bit, the senior citizens, 
like <laughs> because they can be relied upon to, to vote. But, you know, not even that. We have we have a lot of elder poverty, like they're chipping away at Social Security. Even what little what like little security they have in, in exchange for their votes for, you know, whatever, even even right wingers at least pay overtures to um, to the elderly. But I just don't yeah. see anything happening without a multi generational, uh, without a multi generational movement. And I think, I think the Bernie, the second campaign actually did better than um, any sort of prior movement. Uh, the the other thing is I I think people, I think people overestimate like the the successes that we did have, or overestimate the influence of like of what the new left kind of was in its infancy. Like if you look at um, desegregation, like those were not a bunch of flower power people. And I think, I think a lot of millennials are under the impression. If you look at them, they're fucking school nerds. And one of the reasons they were able to do, to participate in those and, and play integral roles in those demonstrations, successful demonstrations for ones. Uh, was because they could just not go to college for a semester and dedicate all their time and move to Alabama for a while and start just phone banking. And socialism requires a lot of spreadsheets. It's mostly very boring. And this stuff was years and years. I mean, that picture of Bernie being dragged off by the cops at a demonstration. Look at that nerd with his big fucking glasses. Like, this is not, like, the last <laughs> time we were effective, we uh, we weren't, I say we, but whatever. We weren't particular. We the counterculture wasn't really there. It wasn't really in place. That happened later. Yeah. No, and I think there's a lot of um, cinematic covering over what actually was. You know, a lot of, a lot of the kind of <clears throat> ideas taken about what the new left was also is itself a kind of perversion because it's, what you saw in all these films about Vietnam and whatever and the hippies. Well, um, yeah. So that's and not because, sorry, I hate to go back to this. And because that's because boomers wrote their own history in the most romantic way possible. They're still making yeah. fucking Vietnam movies. Stop doing that. Everything also, <laughs> it, it was this focus on the hippies. They really want to romanticize what political gains they had. Stop fucking making Vietnam movies. There have been so many wars since then. <laughs> There's a good moment to plug if you haven't listened to the our series on generations, five part series on generations, which came out two years ago. I would urge you to listen to it. The episode on boomers in particular, it's my personal favorite, um, which explores a lot of these issues and kind of the self-romanticization of the boomers and so on. Um, so listener, if you'd like to check that out, um, you might find it interesting. Kind of a big, long documentary style thing we did. So uh, to get on to the third perversion, um, <laughs> probably the least self-evident, it's not entirely clear what it refers to but actually i think it's probably the most sophisticated argument um about these kind of degenerations or perversions on the left and that is necrophilia so take it away amber right so i think there is a a, a generation a generation once again and i think they are largely 
uh, millennials. I I think that the ones that sort of um, I don't know. Maybe maybe there are some. Maybe there are some. Obviously, like uh, boomers can't really do it because they just don't write these kinds of books um, at this point. And maybe there are some Gen Xers, but I can't think of any that come to mind. But they seem to love the working class, but only when they're dead. Um, they seem to love uh, what they see as an underdog, but even more so, they like it better when they're defeated. And you see it with a lot of sort of hagiographies, or have you say that word, um, of uh, these amazing labor leaders that were sort of inevitably defeated. And I think it echoes a lot of sort of treatment of many defeated movements or, or peoples. I think, I mean, Martin Luther King was not popular in his time. But as soon as they kill him, oh, there's like a father of civil rights and, you know, indigenous people in America, we loved them. As soon as they were sequestered on, you know, dispersed, displaced, sequestered onto, um, onto fucking reservations and, and essentially like large open air ghettos and, or just completely, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the tribes that did sort of, I don't want to say survive or thrive or anything like that, but made any progress. It was through essentially like, you know, a lot of Navajo voted for Trump. Um, and guess what? We love them. Uh, America loves indigenous people because, you know, just like Martin Luther King, you know, they were, they were these beautiful men. And yeah, there's some racist fetish there. They're these beautiful magic, I don't know, brown fairy creatures is whatever these people think. And, and you hear a lot, you hear a lot of things too, where they're like, you know, oh, that's just so tragic. We killed them all. And it's like, you didn't kill them. Okay. First of all, not, not a we, what's, what's this we shit. Second of all, like they're still alive and around and uh, have their own, you know, political units and, you know, diverse, but they're not doing great, generally speaking. And I think that is what people like about them. That and the sort of romanticism of, of, um, of noble savagery that no one wants to admit, admit to liking. So and when, I when, think when it comes to the working class. Do the same class, thing with labor. Yeah. Sorry. What's on. an example of like a, a necrophile phrase or something? What would what would a necrophile say, or maybe even name um, any noted necrophiles who wish to? <laughs> well, obviously, I talk about Gabe Winant, which is a. I just think it's the best example. Um, his book. Um, it was amazing. There's this. I think it's a Stuart Holland book. Shit. Um, that's. Uh, I think it's called the Entrepreneurial State, and it's all about. Uh, uh, planning. It's all about like state-based planning um, and development. And and it's this idea of very classic workers owning the mean of production. And there's this beautiful modernist image, like the proper, proper modern, modernist logo design, basically, of a hand holding a factory. You know, workers owning the means of production. It's beautiful. And you look at Wynette's book and it's a factory with uh, the the cross sign of a hospital on it. And it's like, how is that good news? 
How is that like, yeah, well, we'll just turn them into essentially like hospices. It's okay. The future of labor is, uh, is uh, taking care of everything that the death, taking care of the people that, you know, the defeats of labor um, have completely uh, just I don't want to say like decimated, but no, I mean, it's, it's, it's lowered lifespan. I think, I think decimation is actually like a pretty good word, um, but immiserated and, uh, you know, disenfranchised in many ways. Uh, but at the same time, it's loving hagiography to, uh, to the, uh, you know, the, the labor leaders of the steel industry. Um, but, but obviously like those people aren't, looking for a uh, good, good, uh, uh, like hospice care or, you know, good, uh, like, uh, healthcare for, for all the injuries that they have incurred, you know, that we all want good healthcare, but also the, the idea that you would have have a large unionized workforce, particularly of people who don't have to spend years and years on a really expensive degree. I mean, nurses are in many ways, um, uh, a good, a, a good um, workforce for certain types of labor, uh, certain types of labor activism. But ultimately, they have a really, really, really rough time um, organizing for higher wages, specifically because one, hospitals are are closing. Uh, there are fewer jobs, and two, they really have a lot of student loans to pay back. Now, we used to have a workforce of people who, I mean, you could go into construction with a record. There's no, like, a criminal record. There's essentially, like, very little, uh, you know, there are very few options for anyone with a record. And America loves throwing people in jail. But you certainly don't have to go to college and spend tens of thousands of dollars. Um, and I think also those people are, are more likely to have labor by the balls. But they aren't sweet pink collar uh nurses which is how people think that obviously it's a highly professionalized job that requires a lot of training but that's part of the problem um i think a lot of people are just scared of those big scary men in their hard hats there's this uh there's this uh idea of like the the blue collar roughneck who is inherently reactionary um and uh, they're a lot easier to like when they've been defeated. Um, so there's this kind of fetishization for uh, for these, uh, you know, the the, the 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 noble underdog, the tragic and romantic loss. I think people fall in love with that, and that's really disgusting to me because it's not it's not something you should be wistful about. It's something that you should be angry about. And I don't think you should immediately be looking for substitutions to those people who are in many ways, just not in as advantageous a position as a large industrialized or infrastructure based uh, workforce. Yeah. So I, I want to move on to, um, you know, past, past perversions to something <laughs> a little bit more, uh, well, uh, so something a little bit a different, little a bit different sort of perversion, perhaps. Well, <laughs> a bit lie, lying horizontal, um, let's put it that way. Um, that's what we're going to be talking about. Occupy, right? So um, we've talked about leaderless horizontalism um, and those sorts of ideas about, you know, 
prefiguration and that you can just occupy a place and, and um, the new world will bloom from that. We've talked about that a lot on this podcast, uh, probably most recently on Vincent Bevan's book about uh, about the kind of decade of global protest, which is kind of a critique of horizontalism. Um, a lot, you dedicate quite a bit of the book, uh, your book, Amber, to to your personal experience in, with Occupy Wall Street, which, you know, at the time you kind of, I think, my impression at least, was that you thought it was self-evidently bullshit, um, but you saw it I and you still it. stuck around. Um, I hated but you stuck it. Around. I was miserable. So, so, sorry, can I just ask a question here then? So you, you hated it and you were miserable, but you stuck around. Is that a kind of masochistic tendency? No, it's more, like to going be... to the, it's more like going to the gym. Right. <laughs> You're like, hopefully I'll get some gains out of this. And also, you hopefully know, I'll I... will get laid out of this. <laughs> I, I didn't... I, um, yeah, the, the... Yeah. Um, the... The, the the issue was more that I was like, well, there's opportunity in this and you have to go where the, the action is. Um, and I, I also had this very misguided um, idea. This is one of the things I take a total mea culpa in, is that like one, I could go into it being an absolute fucking sourpuss um, and, you know, expect to do anything. I, to this day, I'm not really sure if I should have been there or not. Um but at the same time, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, And I think, I think it was the right thing to do. I think if you see that much activity, you know, activity does not always indicate life. Um, I think if you see that much activity, you have to think, maybe I can get a foothold in here. Now, I could not. Um, I feel a little better about it because I think most people couldn't, you know, in DSA as well. I think, you know, anarchism was all the rage. Um, and I don't think I could fight, or even if we, a lot of us organized, which I think qu quite a few of us in DSA at the time, but like at the time, DSA was so small and nobody had heard of it. Um, even if we had coordinated all of our resources, I don't think, I think it would have been swimming upstream. But I also think we had to try. I, I think people, I saw on a podcast uh, a few weeks ago and it's a girl's like, uh, yeah, but I felt really like betrayed by Bernie. It's like, was all that for nothing? And it's like, yeah, sometimes get over it. Like, <laughs> like, like, sorry, you're gonna lose. You have to, you have to be able to handle losing. And you have to, yeah, like, you have get to back on the horse. If there's all that energy there. And I think that does come through in the book that, you know, it, it's i mean i i guess i was obviously knowing what was going to happen anyway but rooting for you to kind of get involved in in occupy to the extent of you know here is a clearly like there's a lot going on here it, it, you've got to take a gamble that you could maybe yeah. start to provide some organization there because it clearly wasn't there at the start you've just got people walking around the park and you know not really doing anything and you know maybe if you start looking like you know what you're doing and marching people will falling behind you you know why, yeah. why not take that risk yeah um and like taking risk is just part of it you can't predict the future you never know what's gonna work or not but boy did i fucking hate it um it was just and i, I think you're talking about just people just uh marching around the park i wouldn't i wouldn't really keep it to that i would i would give the people involved way more credit than that even the people who i think were politically and organizationally incredibly misguided they were very active you know they did a lot of stuff 
It's just, I don't think it was the best use of resources. And particularly, I think the model of horizontalism has proven over and over and over and over and over again to just suck. Uh, It just does not work. And that's another thing that I had, I think, a leg up on because I had read The Tyranny of Structurelessness. You know, I I had read, and and that's the most direct amalgam of it is that Joe Freeman essay. Like, but there are other ones too, like obviously. One of the big ones is cults. If you read a lot of cult memoirs, it there it turns into or or commune memoirs, even the ones that didn't really, you know, we'll say go a little go a little pedophile. Uh even those like they they disintegrate um because there's no structure. And I I think the idea of hierarchy being violence really conceives of hierarchy as authoritarianism rather than a specialization of labor, which some people are just better at other stuff. I, for example, was not good at like outreach. This is, this is in the, uh, this is in the thing too. I was just like, man, I hated it because I didn't think it was doing anything really. Um, and I didn't think, but also I sucked at a lot of the stuff that was um, sort of focused on there. And to some degree, that was like just sort of a learning process for me. Um, but also, I think even if I had been good at it, it would have still been useless. So that I can, I console myself with that a little bit. Um, but it really was deeply frustrating to see the same kind of tyrannical personalities take over or just the disorganization or just the nuts. And it's like, it just favored, it favored actual authoritarianism. Whereas at least with like a structure and a formal organization, you could, uh, you know, provide checks um, and, you know, democratic uh, sort of, uh, you know, democratic approaches to, hey, this person's getting a little big for their britches. Otherwise, everyone was just flailing. The thing that really stuck out to me was how fucking nasty it was. And I think that was like a precursor to a lot of the horrible things that happened in DSA, which I didn't even get a chance to sort of write about because I didn't want it to turn into just a bitch session. I mean, there was a lot of very encouraging things that happened in DSA, but man, just fucking mean ass people, just like just vicious, sadistic, authoritarian minded people. I'm not like even of the, you know, the the Adorno, like, F-scale type person, but I'm like, shit, maybe, when I remember that. And it's like, you don't know how they ended up like that, but you do know it's very easy for those people to take advantage of and boss around people with essentially, like, a good and forgiving nature. And I think mm-hmm. you can't really ignore, like, the emotional component of this. I think one of the things I didn't really get and then I that I really should have gotten about Occupy, I should have walked away with, and I, I don't think it was until the end of the first Bernie campaign that I got it, is that, yeah, a lot of people are looking for some sort of, for lack of a better word, community, which I hate that word. I think it's largely reactionary. But, I, you know, a lot of people do need some kind of sense of um, belonging to a movement. And for me, I was just so fucking pragmatic about it. I was just so, I don't care. I already have friends. Like I was (laughs) cool before this. This is the, being a socialist has always been the least cool thing about me. 
it, but it's like people do need that. And I was, I, I was just like, you fucking dorks. <laughs> like, and I was like, make real friends and then go into politics. You should be very wary of someone who doesn't have a lot of buddies suddenly, you know, finding their, their, uh, their calling in politics. Wow. Yeah, because it might literally also be a cop, which, you know, you dedicate some, like some funny sections yeah. of the book, uh, to, um, but wait, I, so I want to, we're going to move on to the, to the bonus show on Patreon in just a second, um, and where we're going to talk a little bit more about, um, the failures of the millennial left, um, the defeat of left populism, which we've done a lot before, but, um, there's been some specific stuff and also in relation to, um, what's happened with DSA. Uh, and then we're going to move on to talk about, as I said, a uh, little bit about the world economic forum, the vibe shift amongst the elite, and maybe a little bit of, of a previewing of, of the U S election, but that's all on the Patreon show. Just before that, I, I wanted to like, just finish off the section by asking you, Amber, like, you know, talking about learning things and learning from defeat and learning from mistakes. Did you learn anything while in the process of writing the book that you were like in recollecting these experiences? You thought, Oh shit. Okay. Something's new come to light. Yeah, for sure. I, I think the biggest thing from, uh, from a writing perspective and from trying to um, do what I think was my responsibility, which was to sort of tell the truth as best I could. Um, one, the, the book was sort of pitched as a memoir because I wanted to get it published. Uh, and it's it's really not that much memoir. It, it is, you know, we, we've talked about me having, you know, big criticisms of the of the confessional industrial complex or whatever. But I did, you know, as I've said before, I think it was important just to remind people that having a political life is no substitute for having a real life. And you should really not sacrifice uh the uh, latter for the former. Um, but I got really stuck. I mean, I, I had like a little bit of like a, a literary crisis. Um, I was like, what the fuck do I say? I'm like, I can't, I, I don't want to focus too much on like, you know, just a bitch session um, because that's, that's not, you know, I, I, I think there were things to learn from it. And I think there were sort of important moments and, and, and good takeaways. And there were some beautiful moments, you know, I don't want to focus on the romantic. I'm not a boomer for Christ's sake. Um, but I realized that I didn't have a happy ending and that freaked me out. I was like, I don't have anything good to say. Like, you know, you're supposed to one end on a joke, always end on a joke. Uh, and I could do that, but it would have been sort of dark and, uh, and COVID had happened and I'm like, nobody fucking cares about this shit. I ended up adding a, a chapter about COVID just because it was, uh, it, it felt like an extension of the, it did feel like it was part and parcel to the, to the, you know, decline of the, of the American, I don't want to, the, the, the failure of the Bernie movement or the defeat rather of the Bernie movement. Um, but I was like, what do I do? What do I say? This is so... And then I'm just like, well, first of all, you're not going to tell every aspect of the story in one book. Um, try and, you know, you can write another book if you want where you cover other stuff. Maybe a much more gossipy one. Um, but, you know, you're not going to cover anything. Just try and randomly pick some points that you think are important and that you think would be uh, significant to people reading and relate them to the things that if they're reading the book, you know, you know, I know I'm going to have some degree of an audience that that went through that was a part of something that I was a part of. Uh, and two, you don't have to have a happy ending. It's OK. 
like sometimes things just end and it's sad and it's not the way you want to turn out, but it's, it's literally, and I mean this literally not the end of the world. It's just, I, I want to like, look, if you really believe in this stuff, you're in the reserves. You wait for the next opportunity. Don't fucking throw yourself at absolutely everything. I think again, Occupy is a good example where, oh, I hate this, but maybe there's something there because it was big. It, it became sort of worldwide and it didn't work out. Um, that wasn't as heartbreaking to me as, as, as the, uh, as the end of the Bernie moment. I was a little heartbroken by the end of the Bernie moment. I'll admit that, but you know, you're just going to fail more than you win. And, and you just got to keep throwing yourself into what you think is an opportunity. Again, don't waste your time. Don't, don't be triumphalist about thing. That is a, that is such a death now. We're going to win. We're going to win. You want to find things where you can honestly and very seriously look at the resources of your ha- that you have. Basic accounting, people, uh, money is a big one. Uh, administrative help, you know, boots on the ground, uh, you know, uh, allies with some kind of power. And you want to say, do we have a shot at this? And if it's the answer is maybe, then, you know, go for it. But learn when to say die uh, and learn when to sort of forget that you failed last time. Remember why you failed, but forget that you failed, if that makes sense. And just, you know, right. move forward. I don't I didn't I just like I don't have a happy ending. And once I accepted that, I was like, OK, I can finish the book. All right. Very good. Um, We're going to move over to the Patreon show. So thank you for for listening, uh, general public. But come join us over at patreon.com slash bungacast, where we're going to continue talking about uh, possibilities, about creating new possibilities um, and other um, ways that maybe the left populist moment um, didn't create possibilities for itself um, and the other stuff that I already previewed. Uh, So catch you there. (laughs) 